Well, again, it's good to be here in the first uh, Lord's Day of the New Year. I hope you all had a, a great time with your family and your, your friends uh, over the Christmas holidays. And I pray that you really had an opportunity to stop and consider carefully the birth of Christ. Each year at Christmas, and I usually do this on the, uh, on the Christmas Eve service, but I always want to remind us of the three realities, three undeniable realities of Christmas. Uh, and and they, are, they are like this. First of all, Christ's very presence in the world speaks to our great guilt and our offense against the Holy God. When you look at Christmas from a theological standpoint, uh, that's what you come with. Christ's very presence in the world speaks of our guilt, uh, our offense against God. Uh, his presence, his incarnation speaks to the enormity of our crime against God and the reality of the fact that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Nothing that we could do except Christ would come and stand in our place and take our punishment. The second great reality about Christmas is it's a, a demonstration, a proclamation of God's tremendous love for mankind, uh, God's love for the world. John three sixteen for God so loved the world, right, that he gave his only begotten son that ever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. So Christmas, the incarnation of Christ, really speaks of the, of the love of God. It speaks of the tender mercy of God. His kindness, his grace poured out towards men uh, who, who are desperately in need. Uh, Christmas speaks to the fact that God is a saving God, that God is for men, that he's passionately involved in the affairs of men, that God has sent his son into the world again, not to condemn the world, but to save it. Christ was sent into the world out of the Father's love and out of our desperate need in order to take away our sin, to be our sin bearer. Christ, for that purpose, was born to die, uh, to be the substitute. To bear the wrath and punishment against our sin so that God would not have to punish us, but God would punish his dear son instead. And then the third great reality of Christmas is that demonstration of God's love in this world demands a response. It demands a response from men. You can't celebrate Christmas properly or understand the true meaning of Christmas unless you repent and turn away from your sin and come to Christ and place your full faith and confidence and trust in him to receive the mercy that God desires for you to have through his son, whom he again has given as a gift of his love, receiving the gift of salvation, receiving the gift of God's grace, uh, again, forgiveness, forgiveness of uh, a freedom from guilt and shame and a new life that God desires for you to richly have in Christ. So I hope that you've stopped and considered those things carefully and not just been caught up in all the cultural aspects of the, of the holiday season and kind of missed the true meaning of Christmas. Now, obviously, we spend a lot of time speaking about the birth of Christ, uh, the issue of Christmas. And in the church, we tend to spend a lot of time uh, speaking of the death of Christ, and, and rightly so, what it means, his, uh, his crucifixion, then his subsequent resurrection from the dead, exactly the significance of the resurrection. And again, all these topics uh, are appropriate that we spend much time on. But the truth is, there's one event in the life of Christ that is rarely uh, considered and frequently considered and frequently preached on or discussed, often even neglected, that I think is of tremendous significance, uh, that really should rank right up there with the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and that would be the ascension of Christ. The ascension of Christ is one of the great events in the life of Christ that we would uh, do well to stop and consider the fact of his leaving, uh, his departure from this earth to go back to heaven. Because when Jesus went back to heaven, it was an affirmation that he has accomplished everything that the Father had sent him into this world to accomplish. Now, in, in this culture, and it's probably true around the world, but especially in our culture, we, spe we 
put a lot of attention on birthdays. We, we celebrate birthdays, and that's good. Uh, we even have national holidays for people in our history uh, and celebrating their birthday. But when the reality is, when you're so excited, a new life comes in the world, the reality is when we celebrate a birth or a birthday, uh, the fact is the moment that that person is born into the world, they haven't accomplished anything. Their life is still before them. <clears throat> their, their future is still unfolding. Uh, unfolding. And the reality is it's only when you come to the end of a person's life, our death day, that you can really look back and see what that person accomplished in their life. Now, the truth is that Jesus Christ is the only person who ever lived whose accomplishments were written down before he was actually born, right? They're written down in the Old Testament. So I think it doesn't make some sense to, uh, uh, to celebrate his birthday because of the special reality of who he is as God incarnate and all that he would accomplish. But, but likewise, I think it makes much sense to celebrate his ascension because that's what ended his uh, earthly journey. Death is what ends most men's earthly journey, but not in the case of, of Jesus Christ because he's the only man who's ever been born who uh, actually defeated death. Therefore, again, the event of his ascension marks the day, again, one of the greatest days in his life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his leaving really one of the greatest things that he's ever done for his followers. Now, in John's gospel, there are at least nine uh, different references where the Lord foretold his ascension, uh, most of them in the upper room with the conversations that he had with his disciples immediately before he was betrayed and crucified. Some are alluded to earlier in that gospel account and under a variety of different uh, uh, settings. For example, after he fed the 5,000, uh, Jesus rebuked the crowd that followed him. Remember, he, he, uh, he uh, made, made the meal and he re- rebukes them because they're really not... Uh, interested in anything more than the physical. He rebukes them because of uh, their interest in the, in the material rather than the spiritual. And, and then he chooses to emphasize that his kingdom is really not of this world. He asks the crowd in John six sixty two, what then if you should behold the Son of Man ascending where he was before? John chapter 7, Jesus is speaking to his critics, the, the false religious leaders of Israel. John seven thirty three says, Jesus therefore said, for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. Uh, you shall seek me, you shall not find me where I'm going, you cannot come. John 13, uh, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end, verse 3 of that chapter. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, verse uh, 36 of John 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me later. So he, he starts alluding to the fact that he's leaving, that he's departing. And again, when, when the Lord told his disciples of that reality that he was going to leave, again, they don't understand it. Their response was grief, sorrow, fear, confusion. They, they don't want him to go. They, they try to stop him from going. John 14, 1, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here it is. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back again. I to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Uh, John fourteen twelve. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me in the works that I do, uh, he shall all, uh, he shall do also, and greater works than these uh, he shall do, because I go to the Father. Verse nineteen. And after a little while, and the world and the world will behold me no more. 
but you will behold me because I live, you shall live. Verse 28, you heard uh, that I said, you sh- I will go away and come to you again. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. I mean, he just keeps telling them of this fact that he's going to depart. John 16, 5, I'm going with him to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where you're going, but I've said these things and, and to you, and sorrow has filled your heart. I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For I do not, if I do not go away, then the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment concerning sin, because they do not believe me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And then John sixteen twenty eight says, I came from the Father, entered the world, now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. So again, all these different allusions to the fact that he's leaving. There's an interesting one over in Luke chapter 9, you don't have to turn there, uh, but, but it's, it, it, Luke's uh, rendering of the transfiguration, and the phraseology there I think is really interesting. In Luke nine twenty nine, while they were praying, the appearance of his face, Christ, uh, became different, his clothing became white and, and gleaming, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who uh, appearing in glory were speaking of, here's the word, his departure in the New American Standard, his departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The King James says he spake of his decease, his decease, which he should accomplish in Jerusalem. And it's really interesting that word either departure or decease is the word exodus. He's talking about his exodus, his departure. Uh, his life is coming to an end here on the earth. He's not dying, but he's going to make an exodus. One writer says this, Whereas the exodus delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, the Lord Jesus' exodus would deliver his people from a far worse slavery, that being bondage to sin, which leads to eternal death. Just as the exodus was the moment of, of glorious triumph uh, of the Jews, so too was Jesus' death viewed in light of the resurrection and the ascension. He's going to depart. Now, again, remember when he was arrested by the religious leaders, he goes on trial before the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court. The high priest comes to him, Matthew 26, verse 63. He says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, you shall see the sons of man sitting at the right hand of, the, of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. It has to be a reference uh, to the fact of his ascension, the exaltation of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the fact that he's going to see, he will be seen, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, right, and uh, as Christ returns to heaven. It's a reference, that reference to sitting at the right hand is a reference out of Psalm 110, verse 1, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So it's the exaltation of the person of Christ. Uh, at his ascension and his subsequent uh, glorification. Uh, remember that the, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, <clears throat> we spent quite a bit of time on that in John chapter 20, the day of his resurrection, Mary Magdalene, she sees him. She's over, so overcome with joy. And when she first recognizes it, it's not the gardener, it's actually Jesus, uh, she clings to him. She wants to make sure she's holding on to him because she doesn't want to lose him again. So she's holding on to him so tight that he, he doesn't uh, uh, flee her presence. And Jesus says to her, John 20 verse 17, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet here it is ascended to the Father. But I go to my my brother. But go to my brethren and tell them I send to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. So again, the Lord is indicating that there's going to be uh, because of the death, burial, resurrection, and then the ascension. There's going to be a difference in the relationship that we had with Christ 
subsequent to those events. Uh, uh, the old relationship, the physical, the, the site, his presence is going to be replaced by something more significant, something uh, more intimate, uh, uh, a more spiritual relationship. That the Christ is going to be available not just to one person at a time when he was incarnate, uh, but but something is going to be available. He's going to be available to everybody, to all believers all around the world, uh, continuously uh, at all times. Uh, Paul actually speaks of that reality. He, he he puts it in a little different phraseology. He says, Second Corinthians five verse sixteen. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. So Paul is saying, look, there's going to come a time that the present relationship with the other Lord Jesus Christ is spiritual, not physical. And since the ascension of our Lord, he is now physically removed, but he's now spiritually near to us. And now the implications, again, of the ascension, there are many that are great. We're going to look at them here just kind of briefly before we're done. At least we'll do a little quick flyover of them in part. But the question uh, could be asked, like, what could be better than being in the very presence of the eternal God in the flesh? What could be better than that, right? What could be better than being in the very presence of the eternal God in the flesh, God incarnate? What could be better than having the great physician of our souls, the one who can heal all of our diseases? What could be better than being in the presence of the one who's eternal wisdom, who could answer all of your questions and all of your, uh, uh, give all the answers to the, to the things that you're asking, all the information you need? What's better than having him right next to you physically? The answer to the question Christ is going to tell us, it's better than if he left. It's better that he would depart. What would be better than his physical presence? It would be better if he left this earth. John 16, 7. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement because I think, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think within our own minds, there's a thinking somewhat along the lines of, I wish, I only wish that I could have been there when Jesus was walking on the earth, right? Is that true? I, I just wish I could have been there. And, and I get that to a certain extent, and, and I think sometimes when we make that kind of a statement or think those kind of thoughts, we're, we're thinking, maybe not voicing it outwards, but we're thinking that maybe we've been slighted. Maybe we've been slighted because we missed something. We missed something that we would have gained if we'd have been there in the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then you have to stop and ask the question, is that true biblically? Is that true biblically? And the answer that Jesus gives is no, it's not true biblically. He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. John MacArthur asked a series of questions that kind of gets to the real issue here to help us think biblically and correctly on this uh, issue, he asked this, would you rather have lived during the time of Jesus' humiliation or would you rather live during the time of his exaltation? Would you rather have lived with him during the time of his limitation or live with him during the time where there is no limit, no limitation? Would you rather have lived with Jesus when he could be somewhere or would you rather live with Jesus when he could be everywhere? Would you rather live with Jesus when he was with you or would you rather live with Jesus when he is in you? Those are great questions. And like we do, the early church did the same thing. They worshiped Christ. They sang songs about Christ. They even sang songs 
hymns, spiritual songs. They even sing songs about the ascension. In fact, put a mark there in your Bible and, and uh, turn with me over to um, 1 Timothy. And just a real quick run through here, but but this is considered by many to be an early hymn of the church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So again, this is a, a hymn uh, the early church would, would sing. It goes like this, verse 16, and by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on the world, believed out in the world, and here it is, taken up in glory. There, there's the ascension. There's, they're, they're singing of the ascension. By, by common confession, uh, again, the truth repeated by all of us, the truth understood uh, by all of us, the truth sung by all of us, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery, the revelation of, uh, of the sacred revelation of divine truth and the person of truth, the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the writer of the, the psalm uh, gives six major points here that we should consider. Uh, first, he says, he who is revealed in the flesh. Uh, again, he's talking about the incarnation. He's talking about the virgin birth. Uh, he's talking about the fact that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Uh, um, uh, uh, Bruce read it at the beginning, you know, the, the eternal word uh, that was made flesh, manifested, revealed. Uh, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Verse 14 of John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. By common, common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, and then the second point of the, uh, of the psalm, uh, he was vindicated in the spirit. He was vindicated in the spirit. It's an affirmation of the uh, of the father for the son. It's an affirmation of the uh, the father's uh, uh, love for the son. Uh, the, the spirit descends upon him as a dove at his baptism. Uh, again, it's an affirmation that he's the one. Uh, he's the one who is a, of the father's love. He has a, the father has a love for the son. It's a, a demonstration of the power that the father is going to express in his work uh, through the son. Uh, this one who was vindicated in the spirit was reproached in the, as a sinner. Uh, he was put to death as a malefactor. He who knew no sin became sin. Again, put to death in the flesh, but he was raised again by the spirit. Delivered over for our transgressions, raised from the dead because God fully accepted his sacrifice uh, on our behalf in full. Holy Spirit raised him from the dead again for our justification, as Paul says in, in, in Romans 4 verse 25. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness who is revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit. Third point, beheld by angels. Well, if you look at the life of the Lord Jesus incarnate uh, here in the world, uh, flesh, uh, angels attended his very needs all through his life. Right, right, the book of Hebrews says that rightly that angels worshipped him. Uh, angels were there at his, uh, his incarnation. They were there at his temptation, his, his agony, his death at the cross. Uh, they're uh, there at the resurrection. They're there at the ascension. Uh, much to his honor. Uh, angels minister to him because he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord over the angelic world. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels. Fourth point, proclaimed on amongst the Gentiles or proclaimed uh, among the nations. Now, again, here's the one who is the light of the nations, the, those who sit in darkness and under the shadow of death, proclaimed to all men everywhere. 
Christ offered not just to uh, 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 the Jews, not just the Savior of the Jews, but uh, the Savior, the Redeemer of all men of the world, Gentiles also. Again, salvation began with the Jews, uh, but the middle wall of partition has been torn down, and now Gentiles are taken in. The gospel is proclaimed to the entire world. The hope of the world, reconciliation, the cancellation of sin, again by resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that message goes out to the entire world, and that world through the person of the Holy Spirit is made available to all, but it's made believable to those who receive the message. That's the first, uh, the, the fifth point. Proclaimed on amongst the nations, believed on in the world. He was preached, proclaimed, uh, and, and not in vain. Men and women came to a knowledge of the truth uh, of the Savior, uh, repentance and faith uh, upon this person. And then ultimately the sixth point here in this song is the ascension. He was taken up in glory. He was taken up in glory. So again, indeed, great is the mystery of godliness, right? Christ in the world, uh, this one who came and this one who's gone back. And, and his entire life was important. Jesus said in John chapter 3, verse 13, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. So again, the ascension is unique only to the person of Jesus Christ. He's the only person who's ever ascended. Now in the Old Testament, you have a couple different situations. You have Enoch who walked with God, Genesis 5.24, and then the text just says this, He was not, and God took him. You have Elijah, who was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind, uh, 2 Kings uh, 2. You have in the future, there will be a time of the rapture of the church when believers will be taken into the presence of God. But in all of human history, there's only one person by his own power that just left the earth and went directly to heaven. In all of human history, there's only one person by his own power that just left the earth, went directly into heaven, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the conclusion of all that he had been sent into this world was accomplished. Right? He, he, he accomplished everything that he had been sent to do in his earthly ministry. So when we come to the Lord's table this morning, in part, uh, we rightly think about the cross and what Christ did there, but that should also lead us to consider the fact of what he did uh, and, and the significance of his ascension, the fact that he has gone back into heaven. Now, to understand the ascension more clearly, uh, there are three references that we should consider. There's a real brief one uh, at the end of Mark 16. It says, uh, Mark 16, 19, so when the Lord Jesus spoke to them, uh, he was received up to heaven, set down at the right hand of God. Uh, that's right after Jesus gave to them in Mark's uh, version, the, the Great Commission, back up in verse 15. And, and the text just says that Jesus was received up into heaven. It doesn't say that he was taken up, it just says he was received. Heaven opens up and just receives him, and then it says he sits down at the right hand of God. Now the authenticity of Mark has been... Uh, uh, there at the end, Mark 16, has been questioned by many. So some would say look, that Luke is the only gospel uh, writer who gives any description of the ascension. And you see that at the end of Luke's gospel, he makes a very quick reference to it in uh, chapter 24, verse 50. It says, he led them out as far as Bethany, lifted up his hands, speaking of Jesus, blessed them. And then it came about that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. He parted from them. That's it. He just left. He ascended up into heaven. Verse 52 of the chapter says they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continuing uh, in the temple and praising God. 
Now, Luke, in fact, has the opportunity to tell us of the ascension twice, two times in his writing. So you have here at the end of uh, his gospel account in Luke, and then in his next edition of the story of Christ, uh, the next volume of his writing, which we know as the book of Acts, right? He says it again. So, so turn over there, Acts chapter 1. And Acts chapter 1 is the most detailed account of, of the ascension, but even in Acts chapter 1, there's not a lot of detail. Acts chapter 1, the first account I composed, verse 1, the first account I composed, that would be the reference to his gospel account, Theophilus, it just means friend of God, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, here it is until the day that he was taken up. Now that's again a reference to the ascension. Luke's going to use that term four times in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, verse 9, verse 11, verse 22. Because at the ascension, that marks the end of our Lord's earthly ministry. Till the day when he was taken up, and after that, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders uh, to the uh, apostles uh, whom he had chosen. Verse 3, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. We talked about a few of those. You remember he entered into the upper room there at the doors. Uh, uh, John 20, verse 19, the doors were locked. The guys were hiding inside there. Uh, he showed up, just popped in. And he showed them the crucifixion wounds in his hands and inside, and then he ate and he drank with them. But most convincingly, the proof, uh, verse 3 goes on, says, appearing to them over a period of 40 days in speaking to them of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, that uh, phrase, the kingdom of God, if I can use this uh, phrase, it's very a, a very pregnant phrase. It means there's just a lot in there, uh, much more than we have time to unpack this morning. But real briefly, I think it's important at least to touch on. Because basically, when you start talking about the kingdom of God, that's the realm where God rules. And you have two basic aspects of the kingdom. You have the universal kingdom, and then you have the mediatorial kingdom. Uh, and, and very basically, the universal kingdom just refers to God's sovereign rule. He rules over all, over all of creation. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Again, that's why the psalmist in Psalm 2 says, you do well if you submit to him, kings of the earth, because he is God. He is the sovereign ruler. So you have the universal kingdom, then you have the mediatorial kingdom. It's just, it refers again to God's rule and authority over his people through various uh, divinely chosen mediators. Adam, uh, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, judges, prophets, the kings of Israel, etc. and so forth. God reveals his will to men, then he mediates his authority through these people. And, and obviously during the time in which we live, the church age, uh, we are presently God's mediators. He mediates his kingdom through believers and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit who are obedient to his word. And, and the final phase of the mediatorial kingdom uh, that will come and dominate the earth is the millennial reign of Christ. Now, following his return in Revelation chapter 19, the Bible says there's going to be a thousand-year period of time where the Lord will reign this earth over this earth. He'll exercise sovereign control over his creation and over all men. And then at the end of the millennium, there'll be the destruction of those who are in rebellion against him. And the millennial kingdom will give way and merge with the universal eternal kingdom. So again, verse 3 says, These things also presented himself alive, uh, after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them the things concerning the kingdom of God. 
So at the end result of his appearance, the apostles are absolutely convinced, right, uh, that Jesus really is literally physically alive. He's resurrected from the dead. And that's going to give them great boldness and confidence to preach the gospel to everyone, even those who crucified him, uh, especially empowered when the Holy Spirit comes. So with the coming of the Holy Spirit, these men are going to be transformed and changed from these fearful, cowering uh, skeptics to bold, powerful witnesses who are, uh, again, that just transformation is a potent proof uh, of the resurrection. Verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father, uh, uh, wait Uh, to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit in many days from now. Verse 6, and so when they come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it time for you, uh, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? Now, again, you'll note that the disciples are looking for that fulfillment. They're looking for the fulfillment of the promised millennial kingdom. And and again, you'll note also that the Lord didn't say to these guys, look, you got it all wrong. There's not going to be one. He didn't say that because that would go against what the scripture says in a variety of places. Isaiah 2, 2 verses 2 and 3, Isaiah 11, 6 through 12, Daniel 2 verse 44, Zechariah 14, 9, the Lord will be the king over all the earth in that day, and the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. I mean, just to name a, a few references. Instead, what he said to them, verse 7, he said, it's not for you to know the times or epics that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So again, Jesus doesn't deny their expectation of a literal earthly kingdom. After all, he is the Messiah. He is the king. And they understood from all of the Old Testament that the king would come and set up a kingdom. But what they were mistaken on is the timing. Uh, they, they didn't understand the timing. They didn't understand that the, 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 the earthly glorious reign of Christ is still yet future because they couldn't see the interval between the first and the second coming. So it'll happen after the second coming. That's when the kingdom will be established, Matthew 25. Verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, even the remotest parts of the earth. Again, that's the day of Pentecost. That's the Holy Spirit coming and permanently indwelling believers, empowering them for ministry. And that's the mission of the church, to witness for Christ, to make disciples of all nations, to represent him everywhere. And verse 8 really is kind of the general outline of the book of Acts. That's what Luke is going to chronicle as he uh, continues to write. Uh, The irresistible march, if you will, forward uh, of Christianity from Jerusalem all the way into the Roman world. And and here it is, verse 9. And after he said these things, he was lifted up. While they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Again, he just took off. He returned to his former glory, back to his father, to take his place on the throne of God's on the throne of God at his right hand. Luke twenty verse forty two, verse Luke twenty two verse sixty nine, Acts two, verse thirty three, all speak of that reality. Colossians 3.1, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, obviously, the apostles must have been in absolute amazement over the whole situation that is unfolding before them. That's why they say, verse 10, uh, as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was departing. And the idea of gazing intently is kind of the idea of gazing longingly. The idea is they're looking like they have just lost something or someone which obviously makes sense in the context. 
Behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. We would assume those are angels. Verse 11, they said also, men, uh, they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? Again, with this idea of longing, losing something. Uh, this Jesus whom has just been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So Jesus was taken up physically, bodily, literally, from the Mount of Olives. That's what Luke says in verse 12. See that also at the end of Luke 24, the, the, this whole thing, the ascension occurred outside of uh, Bethany on the Mount of Olives, just east of Jerusalem. And when Jesus Christ comes back in his second coming, that's exactly where he's coming. He, he's coming back literally physically to the Mount of Olives. You read that in Zechariah 14.4. He's going to set foot down and, and, and the, the mountain is going to uh, displace into two halves. Uh, they're going to look on him whom they pierced, uh, Zechariah 12 verse 10. Revelation 1, 7, when Christ returns, it says the whole world, every eye will see him. So glorified humanity came out of the grave after the crucifixion. And glorified humanity lived with these men for 40 days, whom he loved. And this glorified God-man, then he took that glorified manhood straight to heaven. Again, the only person who ever left under his own power from this earth straight to the presence of God the Father. Now, it's just a pretty straightforward description of what happened. So, so the real question is, what does it mean? What, what's the significance of the ascension? And I'm going to give you a series of headings. You're going to have a hard time writing it down, but you can listen to the sermon over three or four or ten times, and you'll finally get all these, but that's all right. Okay, I'm going to give you a series of them, and, and there are various lists. I kind of looked at a number of different lists uh, that men have put together throughout the years, so I make no claim to originality here. But I'm just going to kind of rapid fire. I'll do my best to try to remember to give me at least the headings twice. And honestly, each one of them could probably be its own sermon, but we're not going to do that. So just very quickly, what does the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ mean? Going back to the right hand of the Father. What's the significance of the ascension? Number one, the ascension signifies the completion of the work of our Lord here on the earth. His ascension signifies his completion of the work that he had been given to do here on the earth. John 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 17, uh, verse 4, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. John 19, you remember, he's hanging there on the cross just before he bows his head and gives up his spirit. uh, And he receives the sour wine. Then he says, it is finished. So Christ has completed the work of salvation, which the Father has sent him into the world to accomplish. He went to the cross. He was born so he could die. He was incarnate so he could go to the cross, suffer and die as the sin bearer. He dies because the wages of sin is death. He defeats death. Therefore, that signifies that the Father has accepted in full his sacrifice. And that men, because Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, men who place their faith in him are justified. They have right standing before the Father. The work of the substitutionary atonement on behalf of sinners is over. That means nothing else needs to be done. That means God's work through Christ is complete. That means all the false religious systems of the world that are always trying to get men to do this or not do this or whatever to get their right standing before God are utter blasphemy. It is finished. 
Nothing else needs to be done. The work of redemption is complete in Christ. The serpent's head has been crushed. Those who repent and place their faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ have forgiveness of sin. And they can celebrate because there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why the hymn writer doesn't just say, he screams out. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood availed for me. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. His ascension signifies the completion of His work. Number two, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ means His earthly limitations are over. His earthly limitations are over. John seventeen four. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you've given me to do. And now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So he's asking the Father to take him back into glory, receive him, restore to him the glory that he had before he departed and came to this world and, and become incarnate. Now, again, the Lord Jesus Christ, he leaves heaven, he comes to earth, he incarnates, he puts on flesh. But in the incarnation, the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't lose anything of his deity. What he does is he puts on, he assumes, a human nature. John Calvin put it like this. He says, Christ indeed could not divest himself of uh, a Godhead, but kept it in concealed, or kept it concealed for a time, that, he, that it might not be seen under the weakness of the flesh. Hence he laid aside his glory in view of men, but not lessening it, but concealing it. I mean, Jesus Christ is no different than who he always has been. But when he comes into the earth uh, and into the world, he puts on a flesh. He, 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 he doesn't end his deity, but he conceals it for a time. Uh, the eternal God come in the flesh. There's limitations upon him. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 6, Jesus, uh, speaking of Jesus, Paul says, he, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God, with, with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. If you're familiar with that, that's the word kenosis. So there's all kinds of discussion on that, uh, the kenosis, the so-called emptying of Christ. Uh, some would see it as uh, that he lay, lays aside the independent use uh, of his uh, divine privileges. Uh, others would say, well, well, Paul explains it. We don't have to kind of we have any kind of conjecture here. Paul explains what it means to empty himself, and Christ emptied himself. He says, you get it in the very next phrase, uh, taking on the form of a bondservant, being in the light, made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Right? That's the, that's the, the, the emptying himself. That, that's the humiliation, the condescension uh, of the eternal God coming to the flesh. So again, Jesus never ceased from being God. Jesus didn't give up his deity. When the Son of Man, uh, when the Son of God became a man, he didn't lose any of his divinity any, in any fashion, but he limited himself. He, he assumed a, a locality in a man, uh, infinite being veiled in flesh uh, into a finite location, but not fully contained in that uh, location. Uh, again, Calvin comments like this. He says of, uh, on John 1 and 14, he says, Christ, when he became a man did not cease to be what he had formerly was. And uh, no change took place in the eternal essence of God, which is clothed with flesh. We know this because it's impossible for God to change. But he assumed locality as a man. His infinite being was veiled in a finite location, 
but not fully contained. And then he says, how could it be? And then references 1 Kings 8, verse 27, that says, behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. Right? What can contain God? Answer is nothing, not even heaven and the highest of heavens. So the amazing part of the incarnation of Christ, uh, truly man, truly deity, localizes himself in one place. But at the same time, he's still uh, the omnipresent God. The one who comes and again localizes himself in a body of a man. He submits himself to the will of the Father. He submits himself to the work of the Holy Spirit. He comes in abject humility, subjection, uh, and obedience. And even between the time of his resurrection before his ascension, he's still limited. But as his time on earth is over, he's going to go back to the Father. And again, he wants to be restored back to that pre-incarnate glory. He's going to go back fully empowered, glorified as he was before he came to the earth. Think about this. He left heaven and came to this earth as a spirit. But he returns back to heaven as a man. The, the theological word is theanthropos. Theo, God, anthropos, man. Theon, theanthropos. Who is Jesus Christ descending back into heaven? Perfect deity, perfect humanity. And he would remain perfect deity, perfect humanity throughout all of eternity. The perfect God, man, who is and who will be worshipped in heaven. Who is the lamb standing as if slain, as it says in, in, in the book of the Revelation. So at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, his earthly limitations are over. Third, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ not only restores that intimacy and fellowship that he had with uh, the other members of, of the Trinity uh, before this world, but uh, before he came into this world, but the ascension of Christ marks his exaltation and coronation. Exaltation and coronation. Maybe, maybe you should look over at the Philippians passage uh, just so you can see it. Uh, Philippians 2. Philippians 2, verse 8. And being found in the appearance of a man, as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Here we go. Verse 9. Therefore also God highly exalted him. Well, how, how high did God exalt him? Well, he took him all the way back to heaven, right? That's pretty high. <laughs> right into his very presence. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, took him all the way back up in the, into his presence to sit at his right hand and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Now, I don't really think the name that is above every name, and I don't mean any disrespect here or irreverence, it's not really Jesus because there's a lot of people named Jesus, Jesus. And bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow on the earth, every knee should bow, those are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. That every tongue should confess, here it is, that Jesus Christ is Lord. I think that's the name, sovereign ruler. Lord of the universe, king of the universe. Lord, that, that's who Jesus Christ is. That, that's the name, that's the great reality of the universe. Again, we're back to Psalm 2. You do well, you, you do well to bow before him. You, you do well to humble yourself before him before it's too late. To realize who exactly he is. Listen to Peter, these wonderful words of Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 32. 
This Jesus God raised up again, which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he was poured forth uh, this which you have both seen and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but himself says, he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord in Christ. Uh, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's who Jesus Christ is. Who is he in yonder stall? One you better get right with. As fast as possible. The exalted Lord of glory. That's what happened at his ascension. He went back and assumed the place that, that rightly belonged to him. All of his earthly limitations were over. He's restored again, not just to the intimacy and fellowship, but he's exalted again, coronated. Number four, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ signals his sending of the Holy Spirit. The ascension of the Holy Spirit, the, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies his sending of the Holy Spirit. John sixteen seven. I tell you the truth, it's your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper shall not come, but if I go away, I'll send him to you. Back in John 14, 16, Jesus said, I'll ask the Father, he'll give you another helper, another comforter, paraclete, advocate. And it's really another of the same kind, another one just like me. That he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides in uh, with you and will be in you. It's to your advantage that I go and send the Holy Spirit. John 15, verse 26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. John 16, 13, uh, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. So again, when the Lord Jesus ascends to heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit. Again, the third member of the Trinity who indwells believers always. And that's part of why Jesus could say, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Although he's presently at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he's also the omnipotent, omnipresent uh, God uh, who, who indwells his people. And he promises he's never going to leave them or forsake them. So again, with the coming of the person of the Holy Spirit to replace the bodily presence of Christ, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would now live within his followers, would live within the followers of Christ and fill them with peace and with power. Number five, when the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, that started the work that he promised. That started the work that he promised, that he said he would depart and prepare an eternal home for us. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me and my Father's house and many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Far better for Christ to depart and prepare for us an eternal home, right? Come back and then take us to this place he's been preparing. Spoke the world into existence by the power of his word. He took six days to create it. Not that I think he needed six days, but for a demonstration for us uh, of order and uh, so forth. Six days he created everything. There's some things in this world that are absolutely beautiful. He's been gone for 2,000 years preparing a place for us. What would, must that be like, right? 
Number six, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ marks the passing of the work of evangelism to his followers. Marks the passing of the work of evangelism to us, his followers. Right? Christ gives the great commission. Matthew 18, verse 8, or 28, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, says, All authority has been given to me in heaven, on earth. Go therefore uh, and, and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You see the same thing at the end of Mark. Mark 16, verse 15, he said, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to all creation. Verse 19, when the Lord had spoken to them, they received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then they went out and preached everywhere. It says, verse 20 of Mark 16. Acts 1, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all of Judea, Samaria, even the most parts of the earth. So the command of Christ, the one with all sovereign authority, uh, is to go and make learning believers, disciples, proclaim the gospel. Again, under his authority, he sends the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the believer and empowers them to ensure the success of the advance of the gospel and the making of disciples. In fact, back in John 14, uh, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me and the works that I do, he shall do, and greater works than these he shall do because I go to my Father. So, so the greater works that he's speaking of there are, are in terms of breadth of ministry. Again, when Christ was incarnate, he was one, he, he, as a man, one person can only go one place at a time. But the, the gospel can go to the four corners of the earth, as it were, uh, through his faithful followers that continually are obedient and spirit-empowered to the word and, and proclaim it wherever they go. So, so the, the work of evangelism now falls to the, to the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and greater works because it's going to go everywhere empowered by the person uh, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Number seven, the ascension of Christ back to the Father in heaven signifies the headship of Christ over the church. It, it signifies the headship of Christ. You're already in Philippians. So just turn back to Ephesians uh, chapter one. Real quickly, Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Ephesians 1 verse 18. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Again, that's a reference to the ascension. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are names angelic beings. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age and the one to come. Uh, again, he is the superior one. He is the sovereign. Uh, again, Satan has been vanquished, defeated. Here it is, verse 22. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So again, when Christ ascended to heaven and when he's seated at the right hand of the, of the Father, that establishes the fact that he is indeed the head of the church. Now when you think of the analogy that he's using here, he's using the, the body. You think of your head on your body. Uh, your head is the control center. And again, that's the metaphor, the body. Christ is the head. So Jesus is the control center for the, for the church. He's the one who makes everything happen. He's the head of the body. He's the one who infuses life into the body. He's the one who infuses power and direction. He's the source of everything for the body. God gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. 
Number eight, Christ's ascension to heaven marks his triumph over Satan. Christ's ascension to heaven marks his triumph over Satan. First John 3, 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil. Well, he's ascended into heaven. He, he's the victor. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 2, verse 14, Since then uh, children share in flesh and blood, uh, and he himself likewise partook also of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. He might deliver those through fear of death who were subject to slavery all their lives. Jesus Christ has come and set the captives free. He's defeated death. That is what men fear, all men. But we have a champion, one who's gone, put on flesh just like us, gone before us. Victor over sin, victor over death. The devil no longer has power and authority over those who repent and place their faith in Christ. Number nine, the Lord's ascension into heaven marks the start of his high priestly ministry. Uh, the ascension of the Lord Jesus back into heaven marks the, the start of his high priestly, min- high priestly ministry. We, we spoke about that a lot when we went through John 17. Christ is always there, always interceding for us, always defending us against the accuser of the brethren. That would be the devil. He's always going before the Father, assuring every sin we've ever committed has been paid in full because he loves us and cares for us. That's why Paul could say in Romans 8, verse 31, What then shall we say to these things of God's for us? Who's uh, against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised. Here it is, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Rhetorical questions, answers, nothing, no one. God, God justifies, no one condemns, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, recognizes that uh, fact, the ascension of Christ. He says, Hebrews 4, verse 14, he says, Since we have a high priest who has, here it is, passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who does not sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace and help in our time of need. And then lastly, the tenth one, we probably could do more, but the tenth one, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ assures his return. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ assures his return, his second coming. Again, I read it to you earlier out of Acts chapter 1, verse 9. After he said these things, he was lifted up, and they were looking on, and the cloud received him out of their sight, and they were gazing intently into the sky in which he was departing. Behold, two men, white clothing, stood beside them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. He's coming back. John fourteen three. I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Receive you to myself where I am, there you may be also. So the four great events, the four great truths mark out the life of the, uh, of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth are his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. His birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Spurgeon says it like this. He says, they're like four rungs on the ladder of light, the foot of which is on the earth, and the top reaches all the way into the heavens. Isn't that good? Four aspects of a person in the life of Christ. So the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ signifies the completion of his work here on the earth. 
It means that his earthly limitations are over. It means that he's exalted and coronated in heaven. It signals the sending of the Holy Spirit. It's what started the work, the ascension is what started the work that he promised that he would do and go into part and prepare an eternal home for us. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ makes the passing of the work of evangelism onto us, or marks the passing of the work of evangelism onto us. It signifies that he is head over the church. It marks his triumph over Satan. It marks the start of his high priestly ministry. And lastly, the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ assures he's coming back. Amen? His second coming. Now, we as the church are to be living in light of that reality that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any moment. It's known as imminency or, or his imminent return, I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Uh, he could come at any moment. And the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ could come back at any moment means that we as believers should be living obedient, holy lives. We should be looking for uh, the soon coming return of Christ. And we should be f- wanting to be found faithful when he appears. When he comes back for us, therefore until that time happens, we just live and uh, all we do for his glory. So when we come to the Lord's table this morning, we can think about all that the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished and think about it in terms of the ascension. And again, part of that is the promise of a soon coming return. All right, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for this time in your word. And we're thankful for all Christ accomplishes in his birth, uh, his life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And thank you for giving us an opportunity this morning to think a little more uh, on this one aspect of his life that perhaps we don't consider as carefully as we do, or as we need to. So we just honor you and we thank you for your great grace and thank you for the amazing person uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.